my name is Matthew Grapone, and I'm the assistant pastor here at Cheyenne Mountain Presbyterian Church. And it's my joy to bring God's word to you this morning. Um, special welcome if you are new or visiting with us. Uh, we're glad you're here. And we're glad you're here not because you're filling a seat, but because we're following Jesus. And we're convinced that there's no one so good that they don't need God's grace, and no one so bad that they can't have it. And so we all have something to learn from, from God's word, whether we've been following Jesus our entire lives or whether we wouldn't even call ourselves a Christian. Maybe we have doubts or questions about Christianity. And we all have something to learn because God in his word is going to speak to all of those things. He speaks to our faith. He speaks to our fears, our doubts. Wherever we're at, God wants to speak to us in words that we can understand. And so that's why he's given us his word. And that's why we look at it every week. If you've been with us since the beginning of July, you know that we've been going through the book of Ruth. And you know, since I've said it every time, that Ruth is a book about suffering. And it's a book about suffering because it's a book about widows. And it's a book about suffering because it's a book about people who live in a country where they weren't born. And we've also seen that it's a book about redemption because it's a book about God sustaining and providing for those very same people in the midst of their suffering. And more than anything, it's a book about God's hesed, the Hebrew word that means God's never stopping, never giving up, unbreaking, always and forever love. And now we're at the very end. And if you remember from last week, I told you about my mom who always has to know the end of the story before she starts the beginning. And we're asking the question of how does the story end? Last week we asked how does the story end when we walk and work with God? And we saw that the story ends with sacrifice, but also reward. And now we're going to ask a similar question. How does the story of suffering end? How does the story of suffering end, not just the story for Ruth and Naomi and Boaz, but how does the story of suffering end in our own lives? If there's anything I've taken away from this series, and, and I hope that there's many things from the book of Ruth that stay with you for years and years, the one thing that I'm taking away is, you know, when I think about suffering, even when I think about preaching about suffering, I think about our sufferings the suffering that I might be going through or the suffering that you might be going through. But the book of Ruth talks at least as much about other people's sufferings. It's about Ruth and Naomi, but it's also about, about Boaz. And so it's a book for all of us. It's a book for those of us who are suffering, and it's a book for those of us who know sufferers. So how does the story end? How does the story end for both of us, for those of us who are suffering and those of us who walk with those who suffer. I'll give you one more teaser. You're probably tired of me telling you about words by now, so you'd be glad this is the last sermon on the book of Ruth. Uh, but we are going to have one more set of double words. Now, I cheated a little bit last week. I used some words that appeared three times in chapters in chapter three and four. Now we are going to come back again to a word that only appears twice. It's going to be a little bit easier this time since it only appears in chapter four. Okay, So I've narrowed the field a little bit. Uh, With that, we are in the book of Ruth, and this is God's word, and God tells us that his word is more precious than gold, even the finest gold, and it is sweeter than honey, even honey that comes straight from the honeycomb. So we're going to turn to it now. We're in Ruth chapter 1, starting at verse 
18. Please read with me. Now these are the generations of Perez. Perez fathered Hezron. Hezron fathered Ram. Ram fathered Aminadab. Aminadab fathered Nation. Nation fathered Salmon. Salmon fathered Boaz. Boaz fathered Obed. Obed fathered Jesse. And Jesse fathered David. Please pray with me as we come to this portion of God's word. Dear Father in heaven, we thank you that you do come. You came in Jesus Christ in real time and real space to be with us. You come in your word to speak to us in words that we can understand. You haven't left us alone. You don't leave us alone this morning and you don't leave us alone in our sufferings. And so we ask that you would come now by your Holy Spirit and that you would help us. You'd help us to do what is impossible without you, that we would be able to hear directly from you. We ask all these things in the name of your Son. Amen. I have uh, talked before about the importance of bookends. We looked at this in the book of Matthew. We saw how the book began and how it ended. And now we're going to do it with the book of Ruth. Do you remember the very first thing we found out in the book of Ruth? It wasn't about Boaz or Naomi or Ruth. The very first sentence in the whole book is, at the time when the judges ruled. And I mentioned this briefly in our first sermon, but if if you're familiar with the story of the Bible, you know that the time when the judges ruled was a time of tremendous political conflict and turmoil. There were these cycles of God's people where they would serve God for a time, and then they would rebel against him. And when they would rebel against him, he would hand them over to a foreign king. Then they would repent of their rebellion, and so then God would send a deliverer and save them. Then they would rebel again, and then God would send them again into a foreign land. And this cycle continued over and over, and it didn't just stay that way. Things actually got worse throughout the book. Until the very end, we have two or three horrific stories about the crimes that Israel's committing even within its own nation against each other. And so this is a a time of tremendous political turmoil. That's how the story of Ruth and Naomi and Boaz starts. It's not just that something is going on personally for them. It's that the nation of Israel is churning. It's churning with corrupt leaders who love themselves more than the people that they serve, churning with violence, churning in the way that perhaps our own world feels at times when we listen to the news. That's how the story starts. What's the last book end? How does the story end? It's one word, and it's the word that appears twice in this chapter. Ends with David. And so a book that begins in a time of political turmoil points forward to the time when God is going to finally give Israel a king. He's going to give them the king that's going to serve as the model for all of Israel's kings. David, who is a man after God's own heart. David, who ruled over the most prosperous time of the nation of Israel. And so at the very beginning, the very first words of the book of Ruth, 
and the very last word of the book of Ruth. We see how the story of suffering ends. That God takes our suffering and he uses it as part of his plan of redemption. God takes our suffering and he weaves it into his tapestry of redemption, that he makes it a part of his story. Even when we don't realize it. Boaz and Ruth and Naomi had no idea that this was what was going to happen. Boaz didn't know that his faithfulness was going to result in the ultimate king of Israel. Ruth didn't know that either. But God takes their sufferings. He takes all the accidents, all the tragedies of this book, and he wraps it up into one of the greatest highlights of the Old Testament, this great king, this promised king of David. He uses our sufferings as part of his plan of redemption. But we're not done with bookends. What did we find out after the fact that it was in the time of the judges? Well, we met a man named Elimelech. Remember, Elimelech was Naomi's husband. And Elimelech died. It was actually Elimelech's death and the death of his two sons that started the conflict of this whole book. And we talked on July 1st, our very first sermon series, that Elimelech's name means God is my king. So we asked a big question. Is God still the king when tragedy strikes? Is God still the king in the midst of suffering? And our first answer at the very beginning was yes, God is still the king, but we see another answer here. Elimelech's name appears twice in chapter 1. God is my king dies. And David's name appears twice in chapter 4. And so the answer is not just that God is still the king. The answer is also that God is sending a king. It's not just that God is still in control, that he's still in charge, but he is going to send a king to rule over Israel. And David is actually just the beginning of that. Because David, while Boaz comes before David, David comes before another king. And if you were with us through the, through the book of Matthew, you know that the book of Matthew begins by telling us that Jesus was the son of David. And so how suffering ends is that God is sending a king, not just sending a king, David. Not just making Boaz and Naomi and Ruth part of his plan of redemption for the nation of Israel. But he's going to make them part of his plan of redemption, not just for that king, but for the real ultimate king. And just as he brought about redemption in real time and real space, with real people, with Ruth and Boaz and Naomi, he's going to bring about his ultimate redemption in real time, in real space, with a real man. He's going to be a Jewish man. His name is Jesus. We call him Jesus Christ because Christ means that he's anointed that he is the king, the king even greater than David. He's going to be born in a village, not even a town. Or excuse me, he's born in the town of Bethlehem. He grows up in the village of Nazareth. He's five miles away, even from the, the, uh, the largest city in Galilee. And he's going to live real life, just like Boaz and Naomi and Ruth did. 
And so not only is God the king in the midst of suffering, but this coming king is going to put an end to suffering. Because, see, suffering isn't something that just exists on its own. It's the result of sin in this world. Remember, the story of the Bible is that God created the world completely perfect. It was amazing and wonderful. There was nothing wrong with it. And it was humanity that messed it up. And so, as I mentioned in the book of Matthew, there are many people who are excited about seeing God at the end of time and asking him, God, what have you done? What did you do with this world? And yet they'll be disappointed because God is going to turn back to them and say, no, what have you done? What have you done with this world? And yet even in that, God is going to be the one who's going to solve the problem of sin and suffering because he's going to send his son. He's going to send the ultimate king. And so God used the suffering of Ruth and Boaz and Naomi to bring suffering to an end. And as we walk, as we go through suffering, God does the very same thing in that he takes our sufferings and he makes them part of his plan of redemption. Now this raises some questions about it for us. We might wonder, well, I don't see that now. I don't know how it's all going to end up. I don't know how God is going to use my sufferings ultimately for good. And you know what? Neither did Ruth or Boaz or Naomi. They had no idea as they were going through this story how it was going to end. But they trusted God in the midst of it, knowing his never stopping, never giving up, unbreaking, always and forever love. One of my favorite stories comes from the Revolutionary War. Uh, stories told of there were several American soldiers who were trying to lift a very heavy log, and they couldn't do it. And a, a, a man on horseback came by and saw them struggling, and so he stopped. And he got down and he began helping them, and with his help, they were able to lift the log. Now, there was a third man there, there's a corporal there, and he was refusing to help his men. And so this rider on horseback went up to the corporal and he said, why, why weren't you helping them? And he said, well, I'm in charge, I'm the corporal, it's my job to give orders. And the rider said, well, next time they need help, tell them to call the commander-in-chief. Because the man on the horse was George Washington. We can trust God in the midst of suffering. Because unlike George Washington, he doesn't just join in the suffering of this world, but he chose to experience more suffering than any of us ever will. So we can trust him in the midst of suffering, but we can also have hope in the midst of suffering. And we can have hope because Jesus doesn't just suffer more than we do, but he's with us right now. If there's anything that we've seen in this book is that God is constantly working to provide and sustain his people. And the reason he's able to do that is because of his presence with them. And Jesus is the ultimate example of God's presence with us because he came into real time and real space. And so we can trust him because he suffers more than us. And we can hope in him because he's with us. And so if we're suffering... 
God will take our sufferings and make them part of his plan of redemption. Now, there's a popular idea in our culture right now that history is heading in this very positive direction. That while we experience setbacks, while we experience trials, one day justice is going to prevail. In fact, some people will talk about this as as the arc of history, that it tends towards justice. This is something that a lot of people have grasped onto, that they, is, a, is a popular idea that many people believe in. And yet, what's the basis of that hope? In fact, I'd ask you this question. If you don't call yourself a Christian, if, if you have doubts or questions about Christianity, what is the basis of your hope? Because if we look back at history, we don't have a reason to believe that we're headed in a positive direction. The 20th century is actually one of the worst centuries for human history. If we turn on the news today, you'll know that we have many other things going on that don't give us hope. Here at the end of Ruth, we see that the arc of history is headed towards justice. But it's headed towards justice for the reason that Martin Luther King Jr. said it was. Because of the cross of Christ. It's headed towards justice because there's a king. There's a king greater than any politician. And there's a king who's guiding it. And so how can we have that hope in history if there's no one guiding history? It's an incredibly blind faith. It's actually the Christian faith, the Christian hope that has roots in real time, real space, in history. It's the Christian hope that looks back to Jesus and his death and resurrection and says, yes, we can see that one day all our sufferings will end in redemption because of Jesus. So what's your hope? Where do you find it? Is it in Jesus? Is it in the greatest king? Or is it in something else? Now that's just one half of the equation. Remember we're talking about people who suffer and those who walk with people who suffer. We see that the sufferings of Ruth and Naomi end in redemption. They're going to be part of God's story. But what about those who come alongside? What about Boaz? We've done a little bit of math in this book with the numbers of names, and I'm going to ask you to do math just one more time. There are ten names in this genealogy. Now, the author of the book of Ruth did that intentionally, Old Testament Genealogies are known to sometimes skip generations to to get the right number. They're not being deceptive in any way. This is a common practice in ancient Near Eastern genealogies. This was expected. But they do this so that they can put certain names in certain places. And Boaz, you know what number Boaz is in this list? Boaz's name is the seventh name. And that's not an accident. The seventh name in ancient genealogies was reserved for the person of honor. It was reserved for the person that the author wanted to highlight to lift up. And so Boaz here lays claim to David as well. That Boaz's mercy to Ruth and Naomi, remember we saw last week, the one who lifted up the name keeps the name. The one who doesn't won't. What Boaz does here is going to ripple for generations. 
the effect of his service, the effect of his sacrifice is going to ripple all the way down to us here this morning. And so how does the story end if we're walking alongside of those who are suffering? Well, God uses us as part of his story of redemption as well. And he uses normal people like Ruth and Naomi and Boaz to do it. That when we walk with God, when we follow the rhythm that we've seen of sacrifice and reward, when we realize that committing to God's people is the place of God's presence and God's power, our acts of faithfulness will ripple on for generations. They won't die. Not because we are powerful, but because God is and he joins with us. And so people at Cheyenne Mountain Presbyterian Church this morning, this is true of you. Harvey, as you welcome and minister to people from other countries, what you have done is going to keep on going for generations. Autumn, as you work with women in the Life Network, the lives that you save are going to go on for generations. And some of them, we pray, will serve the Lord. And they will become part of the story of redemption. Our elders, as you work hard during this time of transition to make sure our church continues to have leadership and direction, that's already serving families who are here right now. And the way that you're ministering to them is going to continue to their children and their children after them. Same is true of our deacons as they work to make sure that we don't have mold in our building. God is using our faithfulness. Husbands and wives, as you work hard to stay together, even when it's hard, for the sake of your children, that is going to give them a blessing and an inheritance that will continue for generations. As you work with your children when they're hard and you commit to them, even when you have nothing to gain, whether they're young or they're adults, when you join with them in their suffering, God is using that. God invites anyone who would come and sing with him to sing his song of redemption. It doesn't have to be someone who's been a Christian their whole lives. It doesn't have to be someone who grew up in the church. Here he uses Boaz, the son of a foreign prostitute. He uses Ruth, who's a foreigner and a pagan. He uses Naomi, who's a bitter widow. And so the question is not, where have you come from, but where are you going? Are you willing to sing God's song of redemption with him? Because if you are, he will take your small and feeble efforts. He'll make them part of his song. He'll make them part of his plan of redemption. So that's how the story ends. If we're suffering, if we walk with those who suffer, our story will end as part of God's plan to redeem all things. 
One of my favorite stories is of the famous jazz trumpeter Wynton Marsalis. He's perhaps one of the greatest jazz musicians of all time. World-renowned, has played all over the globe. And the story is told of, in August of 2001, a man walked into a club in downtown Manhattan. And Wynton Marsalis was playing just as a side trumpeter for a band that no one had ever heard of. And finally it came the time for his solo. He was going to not just be someone accompanying, but he was going to get to show off why it was that he was a world-class trumpeter. And so Wynton began playing an old favorite, putting everything he had into it, and he finally got to the climax of the song. He had everyone's attention. And then the greatest faux pas of all music happened, which is that someone's cell phone went off. Now, this is, uh, if you're familiar with the music world, there's many stories about this. Often, if someone's cell phone goes off, conductors are famous for stopping the orchestra until the phone stops, just to make a point. How dare you? How dare you not silence your phone during my performance? But the story's told because Winton did something very different. He paused for a moment and let the, the phone finish ringing. The man with the phone went outside to take his call. And then he began to play the notes of the ringtone on his trumpet. And after he played the notes of the ringtone, he began to improvise on them. And after a little while, he improvised and kept going, and then he went right back into his song. Kept playing and finished the set. Brothers and sisters, God takes our sufferings. He takes our feeble efforts at being faithful. He takes the accidents and the mistakes. He takes the cell phone going off in the middle of a world-class musician performing. And he takes them and he plays them as part of his song. If you're with Christ, in Christ, following after him, and you're part of his people, God takes our sufferings, and he plays them into his masterpiece. And he takes our faithfulness as we walk with those who suffer, and he puts that in there as well. And so we can hope, and we can trust, and we can follow him, because he is the great musician. Will you pray with me? Dear Father in heaven, we thank you so much for your word that comes to encourage us and challenge us. We thank you for the book of Ruth in these small, short four chapters. We ask that you would put it deep in our hearts, that we would remember you and your song, that we would remember it when we're suffering, and we would remember it when those around us suffer, that we would be able to walk with you. We'd be part of your song of redemption, that you invite us to play with you. We thank you that you invite us, not because we've done anything to deserve it, but because Jesus has, and he offers it to everyone. And so we ask it in his name. Amen.